So as probably some of you remember, those of you who were here last week, we're working on the same set of lists these Tuesdays that we're also working on on Thursday. Some of you were courageous enough to come through for a second dose last week. I suspect it works. And you hear different things every time. So today is the first chunk on this Wings of Awakening list is the chunk that is the foundations of mindfulness. And I have to say, I think it's, for me, one of the most useful lists, because it really contains a lot of what you need to know if you are a meditator. And um, it is sometimes called the four frames of reference, but I actually like the term the four foundations of mindfulness quite a lot. Because it has that sense of this is what you build your mindfulness on. If you use any one of these things as a foundation for your presence. So the first, and in some sense it's one of the, maybe the most important, is the foundation of the body. If you are in your body, if you are aware of your body, you are present. Isn't that great? It just it doesn't matter how you're in your body. You can be hating it or loving it or itching or hurting or in utter sexual ecstasy, whatever. But as long as you're here in your body, you are mindful. It's the shortcut to the present moment, being in your body. So the Buddha gives lots of instructions. Some of you have done Bob's 32 parts of the body class. And here, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, in your bone, bone marrow, kidney, etc., etc., etc. I finally learned it all. <laughs> and, um, and that's part of what the Buddha teaches in the Sutta on the foundations of mindfulness as, as a way to be mindful of the body. The 32 parts that they knew about in the time of the body, there's, a, you know, I, most people add another short list of their own things, like your eyes and your ears aren't on there. And so you might want to add a few parts of your own besides those that are out. Um, but in our practice, as you're sitting here on the cushion, body awareness is a very, very good place to rest your attention. And perhaps more specifically for some of you, the awareness of the body breathing. The sitting, breathing, body. So attention to posture, attention to the breath, those kinds of things create a, a wonderful foundation for your mindfulness. As we walked through it earlier, we included the six sense doors. So anytime that you are aware of seeing or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or body sensations, or interestingly enough, mental objects. Isn't that fun? Mental objects are actually considered to be a body experience. And it's helpful to begin to hold them that way, because we make such a big thing out of, oh my god, I'm thinking. It's terrible. I'm having a thought. (laughs) And it's it's just another event and it can be very useful to begin to work with them that way when we're practicing. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mm-hmm. mental objects. Just noticing them 
and naming them. Now, of course, the catch with thinking, right, is that thoughts are very sticky. And so if you start noticing your thoughts, pretty soon you're caught in your thought, and then you're in the novel. They also, there's a wonderful word, papancha in Pali, because thoughts proliferate. So, you know, they're like rabbits. They're worse than rabbits. And you have one thought, and all of a sudden you have 357 thoughts. And then it's exponential from there. So it gets really bad, really fast. So thoughts are probably the trickiest part of that list. But they are, awareness of thinking is actually part of one of the foundations of mindfulness. <coughs> so it's not a problem. You have to be mindful of that. So then the second is the awareness of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. That place where there's a feeling tone. It's called feelings, but it means the feeling tone of your experience. Because so often, when things are pleasant, you know what you do, right? You go, oh, yummy, great meditation. I think I'll go to the 10-day retreat. I wonder when the next one is. And who's teaching it? And where shall I go? You know, Maybe Gil's new retreat center over here in Scotts Valley will be open and done. And then you're gone planning because it's all pleasant. And of course the reverse happens when it's unpleasant. You start thinking about other things to do besides meditating. So just noticing. And again, it's a very, I found this one a very helpful real life practice, everyday life practice. Because so often when things are unpleasant, boy, we want out so fast, you know, and we're pretty, you know, we're so averse to things being unpleasant. And sometimes we're so attached to things being pleasant and beginning to just notice, well, this is a pleasant experience. I can just be with it. How often we have pleasant experiences and pretty quickly, and there you are in the restaurant having a divine bowl of soup, maybe in 15 minutes even. You'll be doing that. And do we stay with the pleasantness of the divine bowl of soup? Pretty soon you and your eating partner are talking about what's in the soup and who made it and is it organic and does it come from? And pretty soon, are you having your pleasant experience? No. You're talking about your pleasant experience. It's different. So to begin it, even in everyday life, to go, oh, this is pleasant. Can I just enjoy a few bites of this soup? Just its wonderful pleasantness. Or can I sit here knowing that it's unpleasant, you know, waiting for the train or the plane or whatever? It's not pleasant, but it is what it is. And learning to be present with those can be very, very helpful in your everyday life. And then the third is this place of noticing the flavor of the mind. Noticing how your mind is. And so often I've told people, you know, the mind is restless, it won't stop thinking. I'll often say, it's like, peel it back and look underneath all those thoughts. And what do you see? And often what you see is the flavor of the mind. You see, oh, my mind is anxious. It's an anxious mind. And when you notice that, I think the mind is actually happy to be seen. And it sort of goes, oh, finally, she got it. I'm anxious, you know. Okay, anxious, you can be with anxiety. Or maybe it's desire, or 
Maybe it's something else. And to just to begin to notice, sometimes the mind is filled with one of these flavors of the mind. Desire, anxiety, openness, spaciousness, relax. What's the nature of the mind? And then that last piece, called the dharmas, it's the insights, really, that come. It's beginning to notice, oh, when I hold on and get attached, I suffer. What do you know? Just like the Buddha said. When I let go, and I'm not, I'm okay, the mind is relaxed, I'm not suffering. And sometimes you notice those when you're practicing, or you notice, oh, the mind is filled with desire. It's hard to be mindful when it's filled with desire, but you see that it's filled with desire, so then you're mindful. It's a little little Aikido number there. It's pretty wonderful, actually. Or you notice what supports being awake, you know, that when the mind is investigative or when there's a certain level of effort, then you're more awake. So all of those are the foundations of your mindfulness. And it's really helpful to be able to reflect on that list once in a while because all of us are doing this practice and that's what you're building your mindfulness on. So I'm going to stop there and see if there are questions from your sitting. Maybe something happened today, you can't quite figure it in terms of what I'm saying about the foundations of mindfulness. Please. I was in a yoga class today and someone sat really close to me, so I got up and left. Because it made me feel uncomfortable. So. Uh-huh. It was unpleasant. Should I stay? Well, interesting. It's a great example. I don't know that there's a right answer. You know, sometimes when people are really close to me in yoga class, I hate it too. So, you know. But you can't always leave when things are unpleasant, can you? Sometimes you're stuck. You might be in the hospital or, you know, strapped to the gurney or whatever. It's not pleasant. Can you leap up and run out the door? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you're too sick and it's unpleasant. So learning to practice with unpleasant experiences. The story I'd love to tell, I'll tell it again because it's fun. I was at Shakespeare Santa Cruz, this was some, some summers ago, one of their afternoon outdoor things. We had reserved seats. And we got there, we were with, with our friends, Dan Landry, whom you know, and his wife, Lori. So other practitioners, that's important for the story. And they couldn't find our seats. And I started to do my queen thing, you know, like, what do you mean you can't find your seats? You know? And I wasn't saying anything, but I think my posture kind of said it. And Lori leaned over and she said, unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. (laughs) And she was right. It was an unpleasant experience. And all I had to do was let it be unpleasant and wait and not be reactive. Right? And so I did. And sure enough, they found their seats. So it's like that. You know, sometimes just catching, oh, this is unpleasant. I don't have to get, you know, I don't have to leap, leap up, maybe. And sometimes it gives you that little window of space. There's part of mindfulness that's called clear comprehension. It's a very important place because it's the place where you can sort of suss out what it is that you need to do. So, it's unpleasant. Is it a good idea to leave? Maybe today it was. I don't know. Another day, maybe it's a more interesting idea 
to stay and see if you can work with the challenge of it. And each person would make a different decision in that moment. But it gives you that moment so that what you're doing is deciding on what's skillful and not just a knee-jerk reactive kind of place. Anything else? Are we 100% clear? I don't believe it. <laughs> Please. You said just, you know, you're noticing the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, how does one sit with the anxiety? How do you sit with anxiety? Mm. It's kind of especially, I have especially these days. There have been other days like these days, but where it just seems to be constant. It's a good question because I don't think that it means just sit there and suffer and be anxious. Mm-hmm. You know. But it helps to know that you're anxious. And it helps to have a certain tolerance for it because when we, again, it's that place of not being reactive. So lots of us, when we're anxious, that's when we get mean or whatever I do anyway, cranky. And, and you know, it's because I'm scared. And, um, those of you who know me well know that this is true. I can get very cranky when I'm scared. So if you know you're scared, if you know you're anxious, then there's a place where you can kind of go, okay, what do I need to do? You may need to shift your practice and do a loving-kindness practice for yourself. Send yourself metta. You know, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. It's, it's almost like you pick yourself up and you go, oh, poor boo-boo. <laughs> you know, you're suffering, you're scared. And maybe you need to take yourself for a walk or go to the beach or whatever. But you can't do that if you don't know that you're anxious. So here in the cushion, we're kind of practicing a little. Like, oh, okay, can I... What happens if I just sit and notice my anxiety? It doesn't mean feed it. Don't start giving it more, you know. Let's see, let's think about the bank account and my <laughs> job and, you know, or lack thereof, or my teenagers and what they're doing. Or, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that, that just feeds the anxiety. That's not so helpful, you know. I hope I didn't just do that. <laughs> but, so you don't want to feed it, but you do want to be able to sit. Sometimes when you sit with it, you realize, oh, it's, it's this or it's that, and, you, it's, and that actually, well, you'll have some insight into the anxiety. That will make you less anxious. So it's kind of, this is all an art form. There, it's like there isn't always, there isn't really one cookie cutter answer to what to do with this or that. But the general understanding is that when we're mindful of what's happening in the mind and the heart and the body, then we can figure out a skillful response. Yeah? So, okay, one more and then we'll stop. Um, well, fear, you know, there fear. you are in fear. It's that indecision that you can't make a decision on what you should do. Uh huh. You know, uh huh. That. So, a couple of things. Uh-huh. Fear is always about the next moment. If you actually notice when you're afraid, usually this moment is okay. Or at least, as my friend Jack Cranfield used to like to say, you know, the bear has you by the elbow, which is bad enough, right? But where the mind goes is, oh my gracious, what if he gets my head? So then you're really afraid about your head. And really what you need to do is cope with your elbow, right? There. So to notice that we're afraid,
again, it can create that window. My own experience is there are a lot of decisions that don't have to be made. If I wait and am mindful, pretty soon I see where it is that I want to go or need to go or whatever, and if I can relax, don't need to make that decision. Once in a while there's one that does have to be made, but a lot of them don't. And the fear doesn't help, actually. So bringing yourself back into the present moment, noticing that right now you're sitting here in this room, nothing bad, I don't think, is happening to you. You know, it's okay this very moment. And then the next moment, and then the next moment. And then beginning to work with whatever the realities are of the situation. Yeah? Yeah. One last thing. Fear is, it's a very powerful mind state. And it's just a mind state. And sometimes it's not very real. Sometimes it is. Sometimes the car is coming, or the bank account is dwindling, or whatever. But a lot of times it's a mind state that when we can alleviate it a little, then we see much more clearly what to do. Okay, just a few announcements.